is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. Hey, it's Jacqueline. It is the first week of November and winter will be here soon. Uh, you know yourself best. You know if you're someone who kind of hibernates all winter, thinking that that's going to feel good, that it's going to feel good to, you know, watch Netflix for 12 hours and just stay huddled up. Uh, but ultimately, you kind of fall into this depressive hole where everything feels really hard. If that's you, let's chat a little bit more. That is kind of what I did my whole early adult life, thinking that you know, this is, this is easy. This, this makes, this feels good. Doing anything for myself feels too hard. I'll just do this. Uh, and it, it didn't, I, I felt, I felt terrible every winter and things really change when we made the decision to move back from Atlanta to Chicago. And I was like, I cannot do what I've done before. I need something different. And so that's when I created a winter month, a winter mental health action plan last winter to help me feel good during winter so that I could be someone you know, someone who actually enjoyed winter, someone who actually enjoyed life, someone who didn't just take November, December, January, February, March, oh my gosh, five months, five months of, of life off, five months of sitting in a depressive hole watching Netflix, I no longer wanted to be that person. So uh, my action plan, my winter mental health action plan included really, really simple things, like simple guys. Uh, uh, one, take my dog for a walk. Two, take myself for a Jacqueline walk. Three, shower and wash my hair. Four, talk to a real human every day. So I know some of those things are going to look a little different, right? Like we're not going um, going off to work. We're not, I can't go to my co-working office to go talk to a real human. It looks a little bit different, but I still do these things. Uh, and it, I mean, my mental health is, is the best that it's ever been because I have this this schedule, this routine, this thing that I do every day, and it prevents me from falling into depressive holes because I feel good about myself that I'm accomplishing things. Um, this self-efficacy, I, I just feel good. So I want to help you feel good this winter. I made it super affordable. It's a no-brainer. It's seven bucks for a 15-minute co-creation session. We're going to figure out what is going to help you feel good this winter. It's probably going to look different than what, what works for me. If you don't have a dog, I'm not going to go tell you to go take a dog for a walk. If you shower in the evenings, then you don't need to do that in the morning, right? It needs to be personal to you and what makes sense for you. Uh, let's get started. You can click the link in the show notes or you can go to www.imperfecteating.com slash action plan. We are going to co-create your winter mental health action plan. All right, let's get on with today's episode. All right, it's Jacqueline, and I'm back today with my favorite Australian, Brody Sharp. Thank you for joining me today. I'm privileged that I am your favorite Australian. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk a lot about a lot today. We're going to talk about my knee and my hip. We're going to talk about Brody's return to running plan, and we're going to talk about some other running myths. So the first thing I... I, I I wanted to tell Brody on camera, on the podcast, like I'm flabbergasted. Like I'm, I'm so amazed and I don't even want to say I'm in disbelief because I do believe this, but like everything that you said in the last episode about our thoughts and our beliefs and like me just like under, like coming to learn to understand pain and I don't want to say push through it, but it is kind of just like push through it, Jacqueline. Like, it's okay. This isn't actually pain. You're okay. Everything is fine. Everything has changed. I, I can't, no, I can't believe it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. You're um, very welcome. 
Yeah. So it took me a while to get back to running after we chatted. I think I did an episode right after you and I, and I was like, okay, I'm going to get back out there. I'm going to get back out there. And I was, I was like, so afraid to. And so I kind of just like played it cool. And I've been wrapping something around my knee for probably four years. So even just getting to the point of not wrapping something around my knee was, I think that that was like the first thing that I needed to do. And so that's what we, that's what I did for probably two or three weeks of just walking around and not um, responding to that temptation or to that urge to put something around my knee. And then after we did that, I was like, all right, I need to do the running thing because it's like this big thing in my head that I'm building up. Like, oh my gosh, it's so scary. But it's not. Like, it's not. But I was really afraid. I was afraid to go running without anything around my knee. Like, but like you said, like, this is just like a belief that I created. So anyways, I just, I wrote out the return to running plan in a little notebook. And it's so silly because I've had (laughs) plenty of other return to running plans, but just like having that column on the right side where it says like notes of symptoms, that like being on the lookout for like when, if something happens or if things are fine. And I think that the talking, like what you said too, like if something happens, if you have a flare up, it doesn't mean that you throw everything out. Cause there was one day that my husband and I, we walked, we walked like a mile and then on the way back, a mile back, I started feeling pressure and I was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, no, no, everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And I iced it and I was like, okay, great. But yeah, I'm about to start week two, um, tomorrow. So. Wow. Congratulations. This is exciting. Yeah, it really is. It is. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm so grateful. And I think just having like knowing that it wasn't just about the running, but it was about like what's going on in my brain and no one, no one had presented that to me. I told you like, they, my doctor was like, Hey, well, I guess you should go get an MRI and go talk to an orthopedic surgeon to go from that, which would have been like thousands and thousands of dollars. Like, I don't even know to, Oh, running a little bit and reminding myself that I'm okay. Like just absurd. Yeah. I think as a, as a physiotherapist and as I am often like a coach for a lot of these people, I, I kind of act as like a, a coach by their side to walk them through the process rather than just giving them exercise and see how they go. It's trying on my behalf, trying to establish, okay, how much is um, psychologically driven, how much is anxiety driven and how much is an actual accurate representation? Like, should we pay attention to that pain signal and often if it's like an acute pain, if it's a pain that's happened for the last couple of days because you've overdone things, we need to interpret those signals as a little bit more accurate. You could say all the pain, all the pain still coming from the brain, yeah. but those signals are a little bit more warranted than someone who has had a very long history of a particular injury and they've overwhelmed themselves with beliefs and they've overwhelmed themselves with anxiety and insecurities or potentially like mental health, like depression, they've, it's affecting their everyday life. These sort of things tend towards uh, um, the brain tending to sensitize a lot of things and misinterpret a lot of pain signals. And so in certain instances, you need to try and think, okay, how much 
influence do we have to have on pain signals? How accurate can we rely on these pain signals? And in what circumstances should we start reassuring the person that a little bit of pain is okay? Um, even it will get to the point, like some people get to the point where they've had 10, 20 years of chronic, chronic back pain. Sometimes it's uh, most commonly, most of the research is around back pain and they can push through like intense levels of pain and recover from that once they have those beliefs addressed and once they have these reassurances addressed. Um, so it's on a, a massive spectrum of, okay, how much do we have to rely on these signals? How much do we have to kind of ignore the signals and um, bust a lot of beliefs that they do have and who fits somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to my dad about this and I was trying to explain, I think that you might've said this and then someone else, another physical therapist that I had on the podcast, um, talking about MRIs. And if you look at someone who has like, um, pain and someone who's, who's not in pain, you might have the same, like the same charts. It might look the same, but like, I don't know. I was, I was talking to my dad about it and he kind of, he was like, well, wait, like I had something that happened to my knee. And I was like, right. Like something happened to you. You were walking while you were golfing and like something happened. And I was like, mine just kind of like built up. And I was like, oh, there's this thing here and it's been here for four years. And now this is just a part of my life. And now I, and now when I see other people walking, I assume that they also like, it was so much anxiety, like, which is what I've yeah. had my whole life. It was just anxiety and worrying thoughts. And then I think about this too, like, oh, I have this podcast about running and I can't run. Like, I think that that was like a whole other thing too. It was just like this, wow, I can't even yeah. talk about running on this running podcast. Like, look, Jacqueline, more proof that you're a failure. Um, and it just, it was all in my head, but just telling me that it was all in my head wasn't the thing. It was like, I had to go do the action and then remind myself that I was safe. Like I had to go do the action and then adjust my thoughts and remind, like reassure myself. Yeah. The cognitive dissonance and even just the, the fact that it's like an identity shift for a lot of these people, if they see themselves as a runner, they identify themselves as a runner. They like telling other people that they are a runner. And then when they're injured and they can't run, there's like this massive disconnect between, um, who they believe to be and what they're doing now. And that can sometimes be really detrimental for them to recover and bounce back to running. Um, there's a interesting book called rebound and Carrie Cheadle is the, um, and she talks about this a lot, having this separation between um, your recovery and your identity and the, the distance between the two and how, how much of a struggle returning to running can be because of that disconnect and what you have to do is like kind of reframe um, your circumstances and say, you are a runner, but rehab is now your sport. This is what you have to pay attention to now um, and kind of reframe it that way, which I really liked as well. Yeah, I do like that. And I think that that was something I started to become more, com more comfortable just calling it like I'm just an active person, which is true of me now. And it wasn't true of me five, 10 years ago, but it's like, oh, like now I ride my bicycle and I um, go to a gym and I do at-home workout programs. So it was kind of like it, there, there, there was like this shift. Um, I'm just running as part of me being active, but it's not my sole identity. There are so many other aspects as well. Yeah. 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 I think about that as well. I, 
when I'm injured and I have to have days off or have to have weeks off, I just think I'm blessed to be able to do something. Like I'm blessed to go for a bike ride, go for a swim, go for a walk, do some strengthening exercises, uh, um, just focusing on the positives rather than just thinking, man, another injury. Oh, I have to take another week off. What about if I'm not meant to be a runner? What about if I'm just designed my body shape or my strength? I'm just not cut out for it. Like all those thoughts can easily go into your mind and easily just like um, weave their way in there and make themselves home. But, you know, it, you need a little bit of self-reflection. You need a little bit of awareness uh, and it takes a lot of practice as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was used. I heard you saying like a bunch of what if questions and I call it kind of like a what if rabbit hole. And like, that's like anxiety can be like overestimating all of this danger and underestimating our ability to cope with it. And it's like, Oh my gosh, what if I'm never able to run again? And it's like, okay, well, could you cope with that Jacqueline? Like, could you pick up something else? And that like, yeah, it's, it's so interesting how our thoughts and our beliefs about ourselves really impact so many things, but we're not even aware that like that stuff is happening. It's just, or we feel like, well, that's just a part of my personality. Like that's, that's another belief. Like this is just a part of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You catch yourself doing these things all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. So on the last episode, you caught me by surprise on a couple of things that you said. And so I'm really excited today. We're going to talk about some running myths. And there were a couple of things you said. One was foam rolling. You said, oh, it's kind of BS. What is that about? Tell me more. Okay. Um, a lot of it is BS and it comes into the same lines of massage and stretching and all these like manual therapy things because people believe that they reduce risk of injury or help uh, recovery, help running performance. They've been told these and fed these beliefs and evidence just doesn't show that. Um, I don't like using the word BS because it does help people. Like these devices and the manual therapies, they definitely help people. It's convincing themselves of what it's actually doing though that can be unhelpful. And um, I often have someone do some stretches or do some foam rolling and they jump up feeling a lot better. I don't say don't do it because it's making them feel better, but it's not going to reduce your risk of injury. It's not going to aid your recovery. It's not going to help performance. It's not going to do any of these things. The research shows that this, these just don't happen. So if we delve into stretching, a lot of people like stretching. A lot of people um, stretch for 10 minutes before they go for a run. Some don't stretch at all. Some do a yoga session before they run and they just feel better. When it comes to stretching, particularly static stretching, the, the research just doesn't show it does anything to reduce risk of injury, increase performance, aid recovery. And what I recommend for people, along with all of those passive modalities and those um, manual therapies, is that just try it out for you and then see if you feel better. It's like a trial and error thing. Mm-hmm. If you feel better with foam rolling, definitely do it. If you feel better getting massages and stretching before run, definitely do it. But what um, what I need to get the message across is when I see a runner who's injured and they go, yeah, I know I get injured. I'm injured all the time, but it's because I don't stretch enough. I know it's because I don't stretch enough. It's that belief that they create. They believe that they're getting injured because they don't stretch enough. When I know 
in fact, that is untrue because the evidence says otherwise. So they're focusing, they're not focusing on the things that could potentially be causing their injuries. Cause if they're injured all the time, it might be their training errors. It might be some other beliefs. It might be, um, a poor structured program. It might be them just overdoing things or swapping shoes out too quickly or, um, their running style too abruptly, which is what the evidence shows why runners get injured, but they're just not focusing on those things because they think that their stretching is the, the reason why they're not getting injured, uh, why they think they uh, are getting all these injuries. And so that's a conversation that I need to have with a lot of people and the, the, the conversation, how I need to educate a lot of these runners that it's not the stretching. Let's focus on something else and change something else. And then that would reduce your risk of injury rather than you just thinking that you just don't stretch enough. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. So when it comes to you, do you stretch at all? I do. Yeah. So if I roll out of bed and I have a run in the morning, I definitely like to stretch my calves, stretch my hamstrings, stretch my glutes, sometimes stretch my quads, but I probably static stretch for about five seconds and that's it. So it's not enough to do anything. Well, even if you're, you're not really doing anything, if you do it for 10 minutes anyway, but I've tried stretching for 10 minutes before a run. I've tried stretching for a couple of seconds before a run. I've tried running without stretching and I feel better just doing that quick little stretch beforehand. If I do a fast run or if I'm doing like intervals or like time trials or something with a bit more intensity, then I'll definitely focus on a more gradual warm up because you need to prepare the body for what it's about to do. So I would do a little bit more stretching through my hips because um, I just feel better after doing that. I would focus on like a gradual warm up. So I'd go from a, a jog to a, um, a slow run to a faster run, faster run, faster run, and a little bit of like a B skips, like a little bit of firing sort of stuff. Um, so definitely if I'm doing something that's quite intense, I would focus a lot more on the warm up mm-hmm. and a little bit more on the stretching. But if it's, of the running that I usually do, which is sometimes a little bit quicker, sometimes my weekend long runs, I would just five seconds stretching each muscle muscle group and then I'm out the door. And that's just what I found works for me. Cool. Um, Another thing you talked about was uh, shoes, (laughs) shoes and varieties and the things we put in our shoes. What's going on with those? Yeah. Okay. Um, Another big misconception that I often talk about is the fact that someone thinks they need a type of shoe based on their shoe, uh, based on their foot shape. Mm -hmm. And it's a very common experience for someone to walk into a shoe store and they're greeted by um, the person who works there and they say, okay, um, what, what's your foot shape? And they say, Oh, they have a look at their foot shape. They might go have a walk on a treadmill. They might go on those gate scans where they um, look at the pressure sensor mat sort of thing and say, Oh, you have a high arch, a medium arch or a low arch. And then they point them to a few different shoe options for them based on their foot shape. And they say, this will help reduce your risk of injury or help you thrive as a runner because if you have a low arch, you need, you require support. Therefore the support, um, these are the shoes that have more support and the research shows, and we can back up with a ton of evidence that there's just no correlation between your foot shape and what shoe you actually need. There's zero correlation. Some people with a low arch will thrive 
in a heavy supportive shoe and others won't. There's just, there's just no correlation based on those characteristics. And we've even like the same could be said with orthotics and the kind of overarching statement that we have to make with orthotics now is yes, it works for some people some of the time, but never for everyone all of the time. And we just don't have, you can't find someone with baseline characteristics and say, yes, based on these measurements, based on this level of strength, based on your biomechanics, you will thrive in an orthotic or you need an orthotic. It's simply just a trial and error basis. We need to give them an orthotic, see if they thrive, give them without an orthotic, see how they go. Um, Some people we might give an orthotic and they're actually worse and say, okay, that's not for you. And this is tends to be what I recommend for runners and what most um, of these researchers recommend with choosing a shoe is that try a whole bunch of different ones and just see what you find most comfortable for you. And if you do decide to go with a different style of shoe or a different structure than what you're used to, make sure that you slowly transition into that because then you'll adapt. Your, Your body will get stronger in those certain areas and will adapt to that shoe. So don't make sure, make sure you don't transition too quickly. But yeah, try a whole bunch of different style of shoes and whatever you find most comfortable, that's going to be the one you're particularly going to thrive in. It's not going to necessarily reduce your risk of injury because there's no one shoe that will reduce your risk of injury. Um, but that's the the overarching advice. I can dive into if someone is injured with a particular injury, let's just say they've got a history of knee pain. They've had a long history of knee pain. There can be certain types of shoes that can reduce the loads on the knee and that could be really helpful for that runner, but we're just shifting the load um, to other parts of the body. So uh, yeah, we could be, we're not decreasing the load throughout the body. We're just shifting it to other places that might be stronger and might be able to tolerate heavier loads. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So do you personally, do you stick with the same shoe? The same, like you're like, wow, this works for me. I'm going to stick with it. Or do you try a bunch of different ones if someone comes out with a new, a new style? I definitely don't follow trends or follow mm-hmm. new shoes. I have um, the shoes that I currently wear. Um, the, the shoes that I spend most of my time in, say 80% of my running, they cost $80 and they are like minimalist style shoes. Mm-hmm. But I also have another one that I run in the first one are like zero drop shoes, extremely light, extremely flimsy, like no support whatsoever. But I also have a second pair of shoes that are, um, they have more of a heel drop. It's like a 10 mil heel drop. It's still extremely light, a little bit more um, structure, a little bit more support to them. And I have those just in case on a particular day or a particular week, my calves are a little bit tight. I'm getting a little bit of like foot tightness, or I just want to shift loads somewhere else and give my body a bit of a break because if I'm doing high mileage in these minimalist shoes, it puts a tremendous amount of load through the Achilles, plantar fascia, foot, um, calf, all that sort of thing. So sometimes I just need to shift that, that load around a little bit. And that's why I have those other shoes in place. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's just what I prefer. And, um, I just like training smarter. Sometimes I'll wake up and feel like, okay, I need to wear these shoes compared to the other, which you do need a little bit of insight. You do need a little bit of, um, <laughs> you need to know what style of shoe or what, um, properties of a particular shoe shift loads to wear. And, um, yeah, so that's usually what I go with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it's just kind of trial and error 
and you you just come to learn it. Because I mean, you go into a store and they're like, cool, get on the machine. Oh, also here's the $70 orthotics that we perfectly fit to your foot. Like you need these. If you don't have these, you're going to get injured in addition to the $150 shoes. And you leave and you're like, man, I thought running was going to be this cheap hobby. Um, shoot, I'm out. <laughs> like you just, you spend a lot of money. I know the last orthotics that I got, I took them out of my shoe and I replaced and I put the, the other thing back in. Cause I was like, these, my feet were in more pain, uh, with them. It didn't feel right to me. Yeah. So it's just trial and error. Yeah. It, it's unfortunate. And some of the shoes these days are north of like $200, $250. Like I'm, I'm definitely not buying into that. There is so much money that goes into marketing these orthotics and these new shoes and big, big companies just want you to buy more and more and more. It's kind of like an Apple company. They're, they're flooding millions of billions of dollars into advertisement just to get you to buy more products. It's a very similar fashion with the shoe industry and they're not regulated by um, like these rigorous um, loopholes, like all these rigorous rules that we have to apply to. Like we can't tell anyone, you know, we can't sell orthotics and say this will help, et cetera, et cetera, because we're governed by a certain um, body to make sure that what we do is evidence-based and scientific, yeah. but shoes are on the total opposite side. They can lie and they can do everything they want um, and they still kind of get away with it. So it's unfortunate, but as long as we listen to podcasts like this and we get the right education and we sort of know that it doesn't have to, it's not that simple to have a process of, okay, let's walk on the, the gate scan, this is the shoe you need. These are the orthotics you need. Go away. Um, and a lot of them tell them like, you know, you'll need new shoes in 500 Ks of running or you'll need shoe. You need to change your shoes every six months. That's totally untrue. But if you wanted someone to buy more shoes, if you wanted to try and incentivize them to buy more shoes because they're a company that thrives off sales, then that's exactly what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. But um, I do have a particular criteria around when people should buy shoes if we wanted to go into that. Yeah, yes. Tell me more about this. So um, you, you get a ton of responses. People say, you know, shoes will last um, 500 miles. Every 500 miles, you need to swap your shoes mm-hmm. or a certain time base, like every six months, 12 months, something like that. My guess, my opinion is you should only change your shoes for three different reasons. One would be significant wear and tear. So significant being that underneath the sole, obviously if it has holes in it, you can you can swap those. Significant wear would be like if the sole of the shoe is wearing out till it gets to like that second layer and it's starting to like change color because of the it's getting into the other fabric. Um, that's the first one. So significant wear and tear. The second would be if it's changing your biomechanics, if it's worn out to the point where you're starting to run a little bit differently, that's when we should start to change, which is a little bit harder for the runner to recognize and they might need to have someone look at how they're running. Mm -hmm. And the third one just being if there's enough wear and tear that's becoming uncomfortable. So any significant wear and tear, if there's... um, if it's becoming uncomfortable or if it's changing your biomechanics, that's when you can say, you know what, these are probably done. Uh, let's, let's find some new shoes. They're, they're, they're the only three. I don't base it on time. I don't base it on like the uh, mileage in the shoes because everyone runs differently. Everyone runs um, different speeds. Everyone runs different mileage. You can't base it on every six months you need running shoes because some people run twice a, twice a week. Some people run seven days a week. It's, yeah, it's just not accurate. and 
it's when you think about it, it just makes sense if you're starting to show signs of wear and tear that's when you need to um that's when you need to swap them yeah that makes sense okay what else you got for <laughs> us what else what comes up a lot on um, that people have misconceptions about um so the the one big one stretching so we've covered that the other mm-hmm. one shoes we've covered that mm-hmm. um no a lot of people get this misconception that running is bad for your knees, especially those non-runners out there and those non-running health professionals out there will say that running is bad for your knees, which we can bust if you want to dive into that one. Yes. That's what personal trainers love to say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so when we're talking about at the start of this episode, we're talking about beliefs and if someone believes it to be true, then it's just unhelpful because the brain's going to be like, why the hell are we running when running's bad for our knees? And then if we do get knee pain, which is the most common site of injury for runners, Mm -hmm. this kind of confirms their belief. I knew running was bad for my knees, but I decided to do it anyway. Now I have knee pain when in fact it might've just been, or in most cases would just be a training error that you've just, Mm-hmm. done which doesn't mean running's bad for your knees and if i delve into the research it's actually running is quite good for your knees and if we look at say uh conditions like osteoarthritis because when people say running's bad for your knees they, they're essentially meaning that running creates wear and tear on the body like the knee joints have a they think that the knee joint has a certain amount of mileage or a certain amount of repetitions that it can take before it just falls to pieces and the cartilage wears out and it's finite in terms of the amount of mileage you can do. That's what people kind of create. And then when they start getting some like early signs of osteoarthritis, it's like, yeah, but you're, you're running, you're, you're wearing out your knees there. That's what people believe to be true. But in fact, there is tons of studies to show that actual ground reaction force. So contacting the ground over and over again, actually stimulates a lot of bone growth. It actually stimulates a lot of cartilage growth. So the cartilage at the end of your bones, which would usually degenerate if it is osteoarthritis, but that running actually stimulates that sort of growth. It also maintains your weight. So you, um, which is very, very good for maintaining or for helping osteoarthritis Mm -hmm. and also just strengthens the muscles around the legs and the knees. There is a huge study that, um, a systematic review that found all the available literature around the prevalence of osteoarthritis and the whole group, uh, included 125,000 people. And they looked at the prevalence of osteoarthritis how common it is within certain populations. And they found that in sedentary people that don't, that aren't fit and active, their prevalence of osteoarthritis is 10.5%. The runners, the recreational runners are at Mm 3.5%. So you're three times more likely to get osteoarthritis if you're in this, if you're a sedentary person compared to if you're a recreational runner and that's gone with the same age, the same, all the other Based on characteristics, exactly the same. The only difference being one person's a recreational runner, one isn't a runner, three times more likely to get osteoarthritis. And if you um, have just gone off what exactly what I said that stimulating the like with the ground reaction force helps stimulate cartilage growth, you can see why that result has uh, why that's resulted in those findings. And so, yes, running is very good for your knees uh, as long as you don't have these huge spikes in load. As long as you maintain a really nice, healthy uh, running program or you're just consistent with your running and you don't have these training errors, 
And yeah, so let's bust that myth. Yeah. Anything else? Definitely. I'd say what the other one that I could think about is when someone is injured, they think that they should completely rest that injury, which is often unhelpful. So um, this is like a game changer for a lot and does require a little bit of insight does require a little bit of coaching from the right people because you're not too sure exactly what to do but i want to introduce the concept of this pain rest weakness downward spiral which happens with a lot of common overuse injuries if someone's ruptured an acl or if it's like trauma based let's treat that differently but if for most runners they'll have an overuse injury where they haven't like rolled an ankle or twisted something but for overuse injuries what happens is a structure becomes sensitive it becomes irritated and becomes sore and because those structures become sensitive they're no longer able to tolerate the same levels of load that you used to so if you're running five miles and then all of a sudden you've got an irritated tendon you can't run five miles again while it's irritated because it just won't be able to tolerate that level of loading because it's mm-hmm. it's quite sensitive at the moment and so people's initial reaction is to be okay i've i've done an injury yes i've overdone it let me just rest for a week. Let my body recover. Let me bo- let my body do what it does and heal. And in a week, I'll try running again and see how I go. And so you've taken this weak sensitive structure that's already a little bit weak and you've treated it with complete rest, which often creates additional weakness. Okay. And then you go back a week later to your usual five miles. And now it can't tolerate five miles because it's weaker so then you run that five miles and it flares up again not as it flared up again but it's flared up more than usual because you've treated it with a five mile run and therefore becomes more irritated and a lot of people would interpret okay maybe my body just hasn't healed yet maybe i need more time let me take two weeks off and so all in all they've had three weeks off and the structure throughout that three weeks is getting weaker 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 therefore it's becoming more sensitive all of a sudden now you're running for one mile and it will flare up and then get weaker again. And then you're like, Oh damn. And then you go into the gym and all of a sudden squats are hurting. You're like, Oh damn. And now all of a sudden stairs are hurting. You're like, Oh damn. Now walking for 15 minutes starts to cause pain. And you get this. Right. My life right you, now. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're getting this. To, yeah, I get my runners to describe this to me. And you just see as the weeks go on, as the months go on, it's just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And this is that pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral that constantly happens. Mm-hmm. And you, I call it a downward spiral because the further down that spiral you are, the harder it is to crawl your way back up because it's so sensitive and it's so weak. And we need to try and find what level of loading you can now tolerate that won't flare things up and try and slowly crawl our way back up. And the sooner we can catch your symptoms down that spiral, the easier we can work our way back up. And so to avoid that whole downward spiral altogether is to, okay, once you do a five mile run and your symptoms flare up, okay, let's straight away work at what we can do. We might have a a day off. We might have a day or two off to let things settle down. You're not going to get any weaker within one or two days, but day two, let's see what we can do. Can we do squats? Can we do a walk? Can we do a bike ride? Can we, do a walk run kind of schedule. So instead of five miles, how about we do 15 minutes of walking for one minute and jogging for one minute. Let's see how things go there. And we're constantly playing around with what you can tolerate. We're following symptoms along the entire way. 
that's where we need a little bit of coaching, a little bit more insight Mm -hmm. from like a physio or a physical therapist. And yeah, rest is not always best. Complete rest often makes things worse and active rehab as soon as you're able to tolerate some levels of load gets people back a lot quicker, a lot sooner. And yeah, that's what everyone wants in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, that whole thing with the, um, okay. I kind of came to this, uh, decision for right now and it's fine because there's a pandemic happening and there's not really any races, but I kind of came to this decision that I'm going to hold off on races for a while because what would happen a lot is, oh my gosh, I got to stick to the plan something happens, you get hurt and you're like, oh man, I take time off and then, okay, well, let me get back to, oh, I'm supposed to be back here. And I just, I think that I'm starting to just kind of like what I'm doing in my outside life, trying to bring that into like how I do things with exercise as well and kind of taking away goals and taking away these deadlines and taking away this like where I'm, where I'm supposed to be, like taking that away and just doing the habits, like just, just do the thing because you like doing the thing because it helps your mental health and it helps you be happy. But like, I I just find when I am on that deadline, I completely neglect self-care, like things that I would, I I'll run through an injury or I'll, um, I don't know. I just feel like I keep pushing myself further back. And if this is, if it's like a year or two of just being a runner without races, like, I don't know. Let's see what that, what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. If there's one advice that I have for a lot of runners out there is learn to be kind to yourself because runners, they hold themselves at such high regard and they hold themselves like these exceedingly high expectations for themselves. And then they're really down on themselves when they don't reach those expectations. And that's, detrimental in a lot of ways it's detrimental outside of the the sport of running it's detrimental within the sport of running um and let's just say you set yourself a marathon goal and a, a tough task of like a tough time within that marathon it's always good to have goals it's always good to have that level of motivation to get there but a lot of people just grind themselves into the ground to get there and they think once i achieve that then i'll be happy or once i achieve that then I'll be like successful, uh, whatever they want to tell themselves. And they don't really necessarily like the training, but they like what it's going to achieve. And so they're grinding away, grinding away months and months and months of working hard, finally get to it. And if they reach that goal, they celebrate for probably like a day or two. And then it's back to the grind. It's back to finding another marathon. It's back to finding another exceedingly high expectation and then trying to meet that and then grinding away when in fact, you shouldn't be convincing yourself that you will be happy, be successful, be, you know, have a higher level of status. Once you achieve that goal, you should just enjoy that whole process along the way. And there might not be a goal at the end. Let's just enjoy the process along the way. And therefore we're not grinding, 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 followed by a fleeting celebration and then back to the daily grind. Be grateful for what you can do. Like I don't have any races prepared. I, the last race I kind of entered was, I think earlier in the year I had a couple of triathlons, but whenever I'm just setting myself a new goal, I'm excited about it, but then I just enjoy the whole process alongside it. I just enjoy that I get out in nature. I enjoy that I get some fresh air. I enjoy the feeling that running gives me very mindful of how I run 
waving to everyone that I run past just so in, have a bit more of an enjoyment factor. And yeah, just enjoy the process because that's going to be a lot more fulfilling than if you just don't enjoy the process and think that you're trying to get to happiness or you're trying to get to success to achieve a certain goal. Mm-hmm. That was the last marathon that I did. Now I'm just confused on years, but yeah, in September, 2019, my goal for that marathon was just to um, still like running once the race was done. Like I didn't care what my time was. I wanted to be injury free and that cool. happened, but still like running once the race was done. And that was the first time that I still liked running when it was done and I continued on with running. Like I still, like it was only, I don't know, like a week or a week and a half after I was like, I, my body feels good. I want to go run. Whereas after other marathons, it was like, I hate running. I don't ever want to do this again. Um, and I think that getting back to this return to running plan with just how easy it is, like a minute on a minute off, a minute on a minute off, And I think especially like with the pandemic, like an opportunity to be outside of the home, like an opportunity to an opportunity and a reason to be in our neighborhood and see other humans because I don't see anyone like it's just been so nice. An opportunity to see the leaves changing. It's fall here now like it versus, oh, my gosh, I have to hit this many miles and I have to be at this pace and I have to blah, blah, blah. It's just been it's been a completely different perspective. Yeah, that's good to hear. And different perspective is also helping like reframe like the story you're telling yourself and what the brain's telling itself. And it's it's kind of like if you appreciate everything and you work from a a mindset of gratitude and you're grateful for doing everything, your brain's not going to be thinking about the anxieties and what about this increases my pain? What's my knee doing right now? What's, you know, we don't have tape on, we're going to fall to pieces. Um, all that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, practicing that mindfulness and practicing gratitude is essential for recovery. Yeah. I I think I'm, anytime I talk to you, I'm always just like awestruck how, I mean, it's these things like practicing gratitude, practicing being present, mindfulness, things that are so important in life. And just like, yes, wow, this was this, I mean, it makes sense that this was happening with running, but I just hadn't addressed it. I hadn't realized it. I hadn't realized that my anxiety was being carried over to this as well. And that the antidote to it was not tape or surgery or um, a cortisone shot or naproxen or any of these things. Like the antidote was to just be more present in my body and notice one of the things I do when I notice I'm too much in my head is like go through the five senses like oh I see people I see trees oh I smell someone's cooking something oh I hear and I just kind of like go through like ah yes remember here (laughs) running not thinking about all of these other things um and yeah like that was that was the solution in this 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 um this case yeah yeah it's interesting how if a runner comes to me for online work and they've had an injury for several years and we're trying to work through it, the amount of prediction that I can have how quickly they're going to recover based on what's happened to them in the past is uncanny. It's like, okay, compared to someone who has plantar fasciitis for five years, but they're exactly what you said. They're like, they're mindful They're they've now like had this 
refocus and they've changed their mindset and they're um, they're working through their beliefs. They've now like busted a lot of beliefs that they have compared to someone who has had plantar fasciitis for five years, but there's still a lot of anxieties. They're really depressed. They they're still just as strong as the other person. They're still just as capable as the other person, but they just, they're feed forwarding a lot of their beliefs over and over. They're constantly thinking about the, the surgeon who um, misdiagnosed them two years ago. They're thinking about the physio who mistreated them with too much shockwave four years ago. They're thinking about like what caused in the first place and they're constantly living in the past and constantly living with the anxieties and frustrations. Even if I tell those two people to do the exactly same things, the the per the second person just isn't going to respond to treatment because they're just not addressing the the brain. They're just not addressing the mind. They're not giving themselves the permission to heal. Whereas the other that's a lot more adaptable and accepting a lot of um, the advice that's being given, a lot of the uh, education that's being given will just adapt and thrive so much better. And a lot of times I provide this education and they just don't want to believe it for whatever particular reason. They take it on board and they say it makes sense. But then after the session, they'll, they'll still go in pattern because what they're used to for so long and it's so hard to break that pattern, um, they're just not going to thrive. They're just not going to recover at the same ability as the first person. Mm-hmm. I feel like it sounds magical and make-believe right like it's not like oh it's the we'll just think positive thoughts and things are going to get better and it's like well it it just it doesn't sound like that could be the solution to something that you're experiencing in your body like it just doesn't make sense to people but i mean like i don't think that we have yeah. a strong like mind-body connection or knowledge of the mind-body connection correct yeah and a lot of times it's unfortunate because health professionals like learn about this stuff, but it's just really hard to communicate to the patient. It's really hard to communicate to the client. And I've struggled a lot with trying to reframe things and trying to get my words across to impact someone because you try and educate them around pain being from the brain and your beliefs have a a direct correlation. And a lot of time what gets, what the patient hears is they think it's all in my head. And sometimes they might say that like a doctor will say, Oh, the pain's actually all in your head. And it actually is because pain comes from the brain. As we know, hundred percent of it comes from the brain. No questions asked, but well, how they interpret it, what they're, what they're hearing is they think I'm making this up when people say, um, you know, the pain's all in your head. They're like, what do you mean? Like I experience this pain every day, every hour of every waking day um you think i'm making this up and that's they just walk out of that that consult thing frustrated feeling angry feeling not listened to and they're just like you know they steam out that's not going to do anything but the right communication the right language the right analogies or something um might help get them across but often times when people think that um pain's all in their head they really take it in another direction and it's often unhelpful So I've been to a lot of physical therapists and you are kind of the first one that I've heard talk about these things. Um, Why are you different than what's out there? Like why, why am I hearing different information from you than what I've heard from all of the 
chain physical therapy offices that I've gone to. Like it, like that part is hard for me to understand, like as a customer, as a client. Um, I think people get stuck in their ways a lot. I know they definitely don't teach this stuff at unis, say 10 years ago. They're only just starting to teach it when I graduated in 2012, Mm -hmm. but the way they were teaching it was a little bit different. And I guess why I'm different is, um, I just go and explore my own research. Like I, I know once I graduated, I bought this book called explain pain, which is heavily like all a whole bunch of research, the most recent research. And I was lucky enough that all the authors are Australian and like, um, I could get the book relatively easily. And it talked you through this. If anyone wants to go to like YouTube and stuff like that, there's tons of, there's, there's a YouTube video called explain pain or pain explained in five minutes, explain pain in five minutes, something okay. like that. Um, where it, it goes through exactly what I've just learned here and exactly what I learned when I, once I graduated, but I've done my own research. I've done my, I've tried to go outside my scope of physio. I've tried to go outside and look at other disciplines and I buy courses, online courses and interview people from other disciplines like podiatrists and chiros and running coaches, pain specialists, um, sleep coaches, all these sort of things. And I just try to get outside of my own physio bubble and just try and learn from everyone. And as long as it's all evidence-based, as long as who I'm trying to learn from is well-versed with the latest research and isn't just attached to their own like narrow beliefs and narrow-minded, like you'll find a podiatrist that's always orthotics-focused and always like they just think orthotics are the solution for everyone or you think a chiro or a physio is just like manual therapy they just need to adjust a, a spine or adjust their hips because their hips are out of line all that sort of like really untrue kind of beliefs uh they just stay really narrow-minded and don't broaden themselves to other perspectives um yeah that's I guess why there's so many chains of people that don't talk about this sort of stuff because they're just in their little echo chamber and their little narrow bubble. So, um, yeah, I guess that's just my opinion, but, um, that's what I've seen working with colleagues and working and talking with other, um, health professionals, but yeah, it's just really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like I've learned a lot in just the last year, just about, so many things and so many um, misconceptions that I had about how things happened. And I really got into cognitive behavioral therapy and doing my own research on anxiety and depression. And I'm like, how did I go to counselors or therapists? And like, no one explained this stuff, but we just kind of like talked in circles and did a lot of, but like, no one ever actually explained like what's actually happening and how can we actually solve this instead of just re- repeating the same life over and over. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been quite the year. There's, there's at times that I've been really grateful yeah. for this extra time at home. Yeah. Sounds like a bit of an eye opener. Yeah, definitely. Um, who, so this is not a running myth, but I had some other questions. Um, on the last episode, we talked a little bit about your, um, personal, like your morning routine and how important that is for you. Um, and then some of the authors, um, I don't know if it was on the episode or not, but we kind of talked about Tony Robbins and just some other things. Um, what have you, what have you found has been really helpful for you, especially during this time at home? I know that you, Australia has been on extreme lockdown. Um, so you've had a lot of time not out and about 
what, what's been really helpful for you? Yeah, we have been in extreme lockdown, especially Melbourne. Well, pretty much only Melbourne. The rest of the states around the country have reopened for a long time and they're filling sports stadiums with with people now. That's where they're back to. But, um, yeah, it's sort of coincided with doing the Tony Robbins course um, with this whole pandemic, which is why we had to do the Tony Robbins event from home. We had to do it virtually. But uh, we took on this three-week challenge after doing that, which was, practicing or being mindful and practicing gratitude every single day for three weeks straight. And it was spending about 10 minutes doing some um, breathing exercises and then focusing on three things that you're grateful for. And so I focused on three main things. One being my relationships being with like relationship with my girlfriend, relationship with my brother, relationship with my family, very, very close with all of those um, people in my life. And not a lot of people get that opportunity. So being very grateful for that. The second area was me being grateful for my um, health, like just physical health, being able to get out and exercise. If I am injured, being able to go for a bike ride, get just walk out in nature, get some fresh air, um, being grateful for that. And the third one was being grateful for my career, which is like I'm self-employed. I get to do what I love every day. I get to follow this mission that I'm on, which doing episodes like this is following that mission exactly. So um, being grateful that I'm not just stuck at an office job that I hate and have, I wake up every day with like this passion to deliver the right information to, to runners, which who I love treating. And so uh, thinking about those and being very grateful for those, but then having some um, focusing some attention on the future, like goals that you have in each of those um three segments those three categories of life and um yeah so the whole routine the whole morning routine took around about 10 minutes and did that every day for three weeks straight and it just reframes a lot of your your mindset and just once you do that morning routine you're just good to go you're like yes you're ready to dive into the day you're ready to be like super productive and like really proactive in in all areas and you just want to be better so i think just for personal growth and just reframing your mind, like bringing out your better self is just a really nice um, regular routine that you can put yourself through. Yeah, that's wonderful. Great. Well, Brody, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been wonderful to check back in with you. Um, yeah, absolutely. People, yeah. And if people want to connect with you, remind us where is the best place they can find you? Yeah, the best place would be the Run Smarter podcast if they wanted to start delving into their own research and um, educating themselves. I do have tons of episodes on things like this and injury-specific stuff and uh, interviews with researchers and health professionals, all that sort of thing. Um, So that would be the first thing. You can reach out to me on social media. Um, So on Instagram, my handle is Run Smarter Series. Um, Most people find my podcast Facebook group as well, and they can just reach out and contact me on Facebook via that uh, if they have any questions, if they have any personalized questions. But yeah, most people find the podcast first, and that's usually their first, um, first, I guess, bit of experience of like, you know, into this new journey of becoming educated and like, you know, having a new spice for life. Yes. I love that. I think that that, um, one of the things that's big in CBT and cognitive behavioral therapy is like being your own therapist, like teaching yourself, getting educated on the things so that you can help yourself. And I think that that's one of the biggest things about like going into your podcast is like 
getting so educated, not that you're not going to reach out to an expert because like, obviously, but like actually knowing what's going on when someone is um, talking about something, it's been so helpful. So thank you for that. You're very welcome. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right, Brody, take care. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Hey, it's Jacqueline. One more time. The reason I wanted to have Brody back on the podcast was because I just have so much trust and faith in what he's doing. He actually contacted me about my podcast. Um, I mean, a few weeks ago, that Monday, I was trying to uh, schedule an appointment with a physical therapist here in the U.S., um, and my insurance, you know how that fun stuff is, but so different things with insurance and with COVID, I couldn't get this appointment and then have this message from Brody on Instagram about my podcast. Um, so I held off on creating that appointment, interviewed him, dove into pain and learning more about it and was like, okay, cool. Like, let me just try this stuff out and see where things go. And if this doesn't work, then I'll go back and I'll schedule that appointment. And I mean, I'm, I'm basically better. I'm basically out and about and running and living my life. Uh, no longer constantly thinking about my knee and my hip. It's just so funny to me as I'm sitting here. Um, I wrote, I wrote a little affirmation to myself in September on September 4th. Uh, my knee feels normal. My body moves with ease. It's fun and exciting to move. And I know that when I wrote that affirmation, those things were not true. My knee did not feel normal. Um, it was not fun and exciting to move. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of stress. There was a lot of um, fear of how it was going to feel. My body's not 100% yet, but I mean, it's not, there's not this constant thinking about my knee there. It just used to be like, oh my gosh, if I stand, I don't want to stand because my knee might hurt. I haven't wrapped anything around my knee in probably, I mean, over a month um, out running up to, I mean, not not super long or a marathon is way off, but I just, what Brody is saying and what he has on his podcast and what we t we've talked about is nothing that I've heard from anyone else. And I've gone to so many different physical therapists, doctor, uh, emails with a doctor, just someone that was kind of inching me along towards like, Oh, there, there must be something really wrong with your body. Let's throw some more money at this. And anyways, the, the resources that Brody has are just so amazing. So I'm going to link a bunch of episodes to his podcast, the one we did together. Um, I also am going to link the YouTube um, video that he suggested. It's called Understanding Pain in Five Minutes or Less and What to Do About It. It was a great video. I just watched it. Um, and then you can also click the link uh, for co-creating your mental health, your winter mental health action plan. Um, guys, we're here to help you feel good and not gross this winter. I'm really excited about all these different things. Reach out if you have any questions. I'll see you next week. Take care.